Scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to St. John. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that for me and you? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 25 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they did. And then he said, Now draw some out and take it to the sommelier. And so they did. And when the sommelier tasted the water that had become wine, he said to the father of the bride, You crafty rascal, you. Everyone else serves the good wine first, and then the swill when all the guests are drunk. But you've saved the best for the last. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, to reveal his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he attends a wedding in Cana of Galilee, which is about four miles down the turnpike from his hometown of Nazareth. His 12 best friends are there and also his mother, and they run out of wine. This is serious. Weddings in first century Palestine were seven-day festivals in a land and in a time when there were always too few calories. Everybody was always hungry. And so to run out of food and drink at a wedding in first century Palestine was a serious faux pas. Now listen to this. We learn so much about the dynamics between a 45-year-old mother and her 30-year-old son from this single story in the Gospel of John. Mary hunts down Jesus among the other 150 wedding guests at this wedding and says, without further explanation, they've run out of wine. That's all she says. Now, this is not Mary's party. She's not the mob. I don't know why she thinks this is her problem to solve, nor why she instantly hands it off to Jesus. Maybe, as a favor to the mob and the fob, she just wants him to run down to the local binnies and pick up six extra cases of Cabernet Sauvignon. Or, more likely, Mary knows better than anybody else that Jesus has come straight from God and might be a chip off the old block and share that divine power, which, by the way, turns water into wine every autumn on the hillsides of Burgundy and Sonoma. They've run out of wine. But Jesus is not having any of this. He says, Mother, why is that my problem? Typical dynamics between a young adult son and his mother. I probably told you this before. When my son was a teenager and his mother would ask him to do something, he had a standard response. Kathy might say, Michael, your room's a mess. Or, Michael, there's six inches of snow in the driveway. And Michael would always respond, and you're telling me this because? In other words, tell somebody who cares. Tell somebody who needs this information. So Mary says they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, and you're telling me this because? And now look at this. She completely ignores him. She pretends he hasn't spoken. 
She pretends he hasn't said no. She turns right to the sommelier and says, do whatever he tells you. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus turns 150 gallons of common well water into a rich red burgundy from the hillsides of France that would get a 98 from Wine Spectator. Now in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' first miracle. This is his splashy debut on history's stage. But why? People are leprous and lame in first century Palestine. They're hungry. They're dying. Galilee is occupied by a harsh and hated evil empire. And Jesus is wasting his divine power making wedding guests drunk. Why? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. John tells us. John tells us that Jesus turns that water into wine to reveal his glory to tell his mother and his best friends and the whole world who he is and what he can do. And ever since he did that 2,000 years ago, the wedding at Cana of Galilee has become a symbol of life in the world to come, that happy, rich, perfect, overflowing, abundant life that prevails when God is finally and fully in charge, the wedding feast that has no end. Fifteen times the New Testament compares the relationship between Christ and his church to the relationship between a bridegroom and his bride. St. John of the Apocalypse says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. And to that one who came down at Bethlehem so long ago and will come again at the end of time, Vancouver poet Diane Tucker prays, O Prince of Life, O Prince of Life, Bridegroom to the Bride, Host of Heaven's perfect marriage feast, take pity on the world's husbands and wives, sand off their rough edges, and open their eyes to each other's special beauties. Such a beautiful prayer, O Prince of Life, just so. No, because that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus is making. That's what Jesus is nurturing. Life, when he sands off our rough edges in domestic situations. That's what we're doing. Making life, nurturing life, when we treat our partners and our children and our parents exactly how Jesus treats his church. Because home is where we learn to live and learn to love. You may have graduated from New Trier High School and Stanford University and Northwestern Law, but if you haven't first learned how to live and love in the home where you grow up, you don't know nothing. Because home is a classroom where we learn the art and science of love. It's where we are schooled either in compassion or in bitterness. It goes both ways, you know. We have a choice. We have a choice what to teach. We have a choice what to learn. New Yorker writer and Pulitzer Prize winner Catherine Schultz has written this beautiful memoir. It's called Lost and Found, very simple. Lost and Found because in a single year she first lost her beloved father and then she found the love of her life, lost and found. Catherine adored her parents. They were intellectuals and witty raconteurs. And one time her sister says to Catherine, our parents not only taught us a love of ideas, they taught us the idea of love. Are you teaching the idea of love to your children in your primary partnership? Is that what they're learning? 
Are they learning how to treat people? When love comes along for them, will they know it for what it is? None of us are perfect, you know. We fail, we stumble, we forget. At my last church, a splendid woman named Pat Case was my nursery school director. She was my Amy Johnson. And every morning, just like Amy, Pat would stand in the driveway of the nursery school at drop-off time so that she could greet every child by name and individually. And Pat tells me that one morning she greeted this one precocious, outgoing child like this. She said, good morning, Charles. How are you? And Charles says, I'm fine, Mrs. Case. How are you? And Pat says, I'm fine, Charles. Thank you for asking. And Charles says, Mrs. Case, guess what? And Pat says, what, Charles? And Charles says, at breakfast this morning, Mommy threw a box of Cheerios at Daddy. <laughs> Two hours later, end of the school day, Charles' mom comes driving into the driveway at the nursery school and jumps out of an SUV the size of an oil tanker. She is the happiest, most chipper woman you have ever seen. She's wearing her tennis whites. She's dripping with golds and diamonds. And when Pat asks her how she is, she says, I am just great, Mrs. Case. Thank you for asking. I couldn't be better. Now, the first thought occur that occurred to me after Pat told me that story is that appearances are deceiving. You never know what's going on behind the closed breakfast nook doors of our supposedly all-American homes. That was my first thought. And my second thought was that Throwing a box of Cheerios at your husband might not be a bad way to express your marital vexation. No, on the one hand, it gets your point across, and on the other, it can't really do any real damage. It's better than throwing, say, the toaster at him. It's not all sex and cuddles and drinking cocoa around the bonfire at the Christmas tree farm, is it? When we're together in such a small place for such a long time, there are irritations and frustrations. And yet, it can be life's greatest gift. The days are hard and the nights are cold and life can throw all manner of crud at us. And so it's nice to have someone to walk the way with us. Someone who pledged her troth to you at the very beginning with my body, I thee worship, we used to say, but don't anymore because it's too carnal for delicate Christian ears. With my body, I thee worship. Jimmy Carter met Rosalind when she was three days old. Jimmy's mom helped deliver her. She was a nurse. And they didn't hang out together growing up because Jimmy's three years older, but Rosalind's best friend was Jimmy's sister, Ruth. And when they were teenagers, Ruth had a photo of Jimmy on her bedroom wall. Just graduated from the Naval Academy, Navy dress whites. And Rosalind developed a serious and instant crush on Jimmy. I fell in love with that picture, she said. Jimmy Carter was a lieutenant in the United States Navy, the Submarine Corps. There is a Sea Wolf submarine named the USS Jimmy Carter. He was governor of Georgia and president of the United States. When he left the White House in 1981, he was 56 years old, 
30 years younger than either of our presumptive presidential candidates for next year. He had 43 years of post-presidency. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Nobel Peace Prize. He worked tirelessly for peace in Palestine and he built thousands of homes for Habitat for Humanity. But if you ask Jimmy Carter about his proudest achievement, he will say, it was the day Rosalind agreed to marry me. O Prince of Life, Bridegroom to the Bride, host of heaven's perfect marriage feast, take pity on this world's husbands and wives, sand off their rough edges, and open their eyes to each other's special beauties. That's what Jimmy Carter taught his Sunday school class every week for 50 years in Plains, Georgia.